Okay, let's go on to Mary Ann's case. Just a caveat on that. We have a trial through UCLA that's four TCH up front and four TCH after surgery. And, you know, I'm not having any qualms with it yet. So, all right. This is a 44-year-old who underwent an implant replacement in 03. The biopsy at that time showed an atypical lobular hyperplasia. She was not treated with anything. In March of 04, she noted enlarging bilateral axillary lymph nodes. A mammogram showed the lymph nodes, but there was nothing in the breast. An MRI was negative. She had bilateral lymph node biopsies, which showed metastatic carcinoma consistent with breast primary. It was BRST positive on the staining. She had a background of silicone in one of the lymph nodes. ER and PR were strongly positive. HER2 was 3 plus by IHC. It subsequently was also tested at USC, and it was also FISH positive. Her staging scan showed diffuse bone mats, diffuse liver mats, retroparent neal lymph nodes, bilateral adnexal masses, and there was findings on the CT that were worrisome for abdominal carcinomatosis. She had a CA-125 that was 334, CA-2729 was 206. Her LFTs were normal, but her ALK-FOS was elevated. Hemoglobin was 11.8. She had a four-year-old son. She's married. They were devastated. And so at that point in time, I was trying to be upbeat about it. Can you just maybe talk a little bit more about her and what her reaction was? This is a really, you know, most women with metastatic disease maybe kind of got prepared for that right. possibility. This just got thrown right horrible. in her face. I mean, it was like a bomb was set off in my exam room. But their concern was that she had ovarian, and they'd already gotten the pitch that, well, there's not much to do. You're not curable. You're not treatable. So we talked at great length. She had waited till she was 40 to get pregnant. She had been a successful professional singer and had retired from singing to have her child and was just ready to go back into singing again. And so it just absolutely devastated them. So, John, you presented the tandem data in San Antonio, looking at metastatic ER-positive, HER2-positive disease, how would you be thinking through her therapy? Well, you're again, south of the border now. Yes, yeah, right. right. I understand so that. that, that one's, Assume yeah, you're yeah. down here with yeah. us. None of this, I can only <laughs> give trastuzumab once nonsense. Well, I, I think you've described the worst of all possible cases when you have a young woman who presents with metastatic disease. You have no therapeutic relationship with them, and you have to try to establish this at visits where all you're doing is giving bad news after bad news, usually when the scans trickle in. So, you know, this is a guarantee for a bad day. And, of course, they have a cute, wonderful four-year-old son who's probably asked you, you know, will mommy be alive for Christmas or something like this? I know this is just as bad as it gets. But throughout all this, you have to come to some sort of an agreement as to what the treatment's going to be. And you've got many options here, obviously. She's got extensive and life-threatening disease. If I heard you correctly say she has liver metastases as well, as diffuse bone, retroperitoneal, massive adenopathy. And the question is, how does she want to approach this? And I would try to tell her there are aggressive options and there are less aggressive options. And the discussion I would have had with her would be to say that the regimens for which a survival advantage has been formally proven, the ones that I could tell you, you're more likely to be alive in two years if you take this treatment as opposed to what used to be our standard, would be basically chemotherapy plus trastuzumab. But by definition, you're tied to chemotherapy. And among the most active options for trastuzumab-based therapy, as you well know, would be docetaxel, carboplatinum, paclitaxel, carboplatinum, or docetaxel alone with trastuzumab. Those are the three regimens that really have been shown in randomized trials to look the most promising, where you can expect time to progression of around a year. In the best of the studies, we're seeing median survival exceeding 40 months. 
Now, if she does not want to take such an aggressive approach with chemotherapy, then you'll have to talk about more gentle options. And we have the monotherapy data with trastuzumab, which obviously is well-tolerated, but response rates are on the order of 20%. Clinical benefit is on the order of 30%. And you're looking at reported survival of around 30 months. So they might be giving up some survival with monotherapy. We have the trial of, in this case, anastrozole, plus trastuzumab, but that's only in postmenopausal women. And this woman is premenopausal, so we couldn't even offer her that right now unless I suppose you were to throw in ovarian function suppression. But that's six weeks before you can reliably say the ovaries are shut off. And going into her abdomen in the absence of ovarian cancer doesn't seem to really make a lot of sense to remove her ovaries. So How about tamoxifen? Tamoxifen would be an option, but again, we don't have any data that it adds in formal sense to the benefit from trastuzumab, although it's not wrong to do it, it's just not a proven option. So in general, I would tell her that if she wanted aggressive chemotherapy with Herceptin, I would provide it with her. If she wanted something that was less aggressive, which she might keep her hair, I guess the best phase two data might actually be venerobine plus trastuzumab should keep her hair and perhaps not have so many untoward side effects. Would you add in endocrine therapy on top of that? I tend not to because then if something works, I never know what's working and I never know what to stop. And in general, the studies have been designed with sequential chemotherapy and at the time of progression, introduction of other therapies, including hormones. So no, I would tell her that I thought she needed chemotherapy plus Herceptin. How aggressive she wanted to go would be a personal choice. Can you kind of follow up with what happened? Right. So she went and saw Mark Pegram. They had a trial at that time, which was called Herceptin and OSI 774, which turned out to be Tarceva. We left her on that trial for about two months. She had horrible skin reaction, but was willing to stick with it. But she had progression on that trial. So at that time, I treated her with TCH, and she had a complete resolution of her ascites and her liver mats, and she felt great. We got her through Halloween. She was thrilled. It was her big holiday of the year. I then called Pegram back and said, okay, now what do I do? My thought was I wanted to put her on Herceptin and Tamoxifen, but I had some reservations about that. I knew I was going to continue with the Herceptin. He didn't bat an eye, and he said, do the Tamoxifen and the Herceptin, which I did. She did very well. So that was 1204. 405, we did a hysterectomy on her because she was not interested in keeping her ovaries. She was concerned about ovarian cancer, which we discussed. And so she had a hysterectomy. Everything was normal except for one area in one ovary that showed metastatic breast. So at that time, I changed her to a Remedex, which was somewhat in the plan already. She did well from 405 until... 806. In the interim, she had normal labs, normal scans, and in September of 05, she had a normal MRI of the brain. So as time went on, her liver function was normal, her tumor markers were normal. She was completely asymptomatic, and for some reason, I ordered an MRI of the brain September 06. Part of that was due to the publications in our local newspapers about oncologists aren't ordering MRIs of the brain often enough. So I did that, and lo and behold, she had a 2.3-centimeter left cerebellar lesion. She was completely asymptomatic, no headache, nothing. We did a craniotomy because her PET scan was negative systemically. Did a craniotomy on her. It was easily resected. She was out of the hospital within three days. Went home, was devastated when her four now 
seven-year-old said, you mean we have to go through this again, Mommy? You're really ugly without hair. Going through all of this, I think that hurt her the most of anything. So she got whole brain radiation therapy. She finished that in November. The end of December, we redid an MRI on her brain, and she has only minimal changes there. Her neurosurgeon saw her last week and was just thrilled with what he saw on the MRI. I subsequently have done a PET scan on her. She had one spot in her ischium that was hypermetabolic. I did a MRI of her pelvis, and there is one spot that shows marrow edema corresponding to the PET scan. So now I still have her on Arimidex, Herceptin. She's been radiated. Lapatinib doesn't come out. So I'm at a point now where I have several options, but this is my question. What would you do? Ruth, can you provide some thoughts? I mean, this is a very interesting case because I think we've all seen cases where they have brain mets, but they're systemically negative. And you just keep the Herceptin going. This is obviously a little bit harder. And I mean, it comes down to the whole issue of what is Herceptin resistance and how much do we really understand it? Because we've all had patients where this has happened to them and then you add in another chemotherapy, like, for example, venerelvine or something, and they do respond again. So that would be an option for her, I think, at this time point. But obviously, I think if lapatinib was available, it might be worth considering that in this patient. So what I would probably do with this lady right now is, it's interesting, looking back over what's been done, it's hard to know whether the Herceptin as a single agent was controlling her disease and how important the hormones were because the tandem trial would suggest that really the combination was a little bit better than the hormones alone, but the hormones really didn't do anything on their own, at least on the tandem study, as the progression-free survival was only two months or so. So I think what I would do with her is, I think obviously you're probably going to change the hormonal therapy because you don't know. So either obviously aromacin or Fazodex would be reasonable. I think that because she's only got a single area, that might be a reasonable thing to do, keep the Herceptin going. But it wouldn't be unreasonable to consider maybe some less toxic chemo with Herceptin at this time point as well. Like for example, venerelbine maybe. Matt? I've never been wildly keen on changing the success of a patient's therapy just on the pace of a shadow in the dark. I just heard about this two weeks ago. Right, but I mean, she's asymptomatic from this lesion that you've worked up. You know, the bone's not compromised in any way. No. So I'm not sure I would change her systemic therapy at this point. You want to tease out every last benefit, you know, and even if it's very slow progression, that may actually still be a benefit. I'm guided more by symptoms very often than what the scans show in these kinds of cases. I actually have a very similar case in my clinic right now. And so it allowed me to actually canvas absolutely everybody as to what to do. So let's assume you don't want to change your therapy based on this little dipsol in her Not pelvis. Right now, no. So with the approval of lapatinib coming along, I guess the options are keep her on the trastuzumab. Basically, wait until brain progression, which she doesn't have, or systemic progression, which she may or may not have. Mm-hmm. So just observe. Option two would be add lapatinib as a single agent to the Herceptin, right? That was one option that was suggested. Option three would be stop the trastuzumab, which you're nervous to do because maybe it's helping her systemically, and add the lapatinib. Four would be lapatinib zoloda and stop the trastuzumab. So there's actually multiple options that you could consider in a couple of months' time And I think it all depends on what the clinical scenario is. There's not a lot of data for combining lapatinib with trastuzumab, although one prominent oncologist was rather keen on that. Others like the idea of just observing the patient and then intervening upon progression. And when progression occurred, give the patient lapatinib as a loader. 
we're going to end in a minute, but I just want to follow up a little bit about the issue of her son and what your observations have been and what in general you see in terms of patients dealing with their children. Most of the time, they don't bring it up unless you ask. This came out because I knew the family very well. I had the whole family go to counseling with a child psychologist, and I talked to her last week, and they've actually discharged him from care because he's done so well. And mom and dad both were remarkably impressed with how much help that was really turned things around. What was it? Was it allowing the child to verbalize? or right. and work through it and let him be angry at somebody else rather than mom. I think he had a lot of opportunity to really talk about it. I actually had a child psychologist come in from Massachusetts for a seminar, and this patient was involved in that and gave her presentation of her case. And they had been very reluctant to talk to him about her diagnosis. But after that seminar, she specifically talk to the child about the diagnosis. So this wasn't a kid that had been in a bubble. He knew what was going on, but he was now old enough to be more cognizant, I think, at the age seven as opposed to four. Yeah, that's a critical issue is the age. Right. What do you see as children get older in terms of how they react to this and how you and the patients deal with it? I think the younger ones, it's not as big of an issue as long as they just know what's going on with mom. I have real concerns about the teenagers. I've got grown boys now, but those teenage years are so horrible to begin with. The parents usually tell me that the teenagers really kind of close in. I mean, they close in anyway, but I see more trouble with that, and I think they really need someone to help them through it. John? It's always difficult, but the cases that I've seen that have been the most difficult are when the parents have refused to share with the kids anything about what's going on and pretend to hide it. Because kids are smart. They know what's going on. And in fact, the fear of the unknown is actually worse than any reality. And I agree that the child psychologist or even an adult psychologist in a family setting can be very useful. And getting the permission from the parents to break the news to the kids has been the one time when I've had absolutely devastating issues when the woman eventually died. I have them bring their kids into the office, too, if they want to, so that there's not as much fear of the unknown. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Meet the Professors.